Hey, welcome everybody to Conduct Detrimental. This is your co-host, Daniel Wallach. Joining me today is Michael Lawson, who's a member of the Conduct Detrimental team and occasional co-host. Mike is a litigator and a lawyer up in Albany, New York. And today we're going to have a sports betting theme on our episode. We are blessed to have as our guest today for a kind of a freewheeling interview on a lot of topics in sports betting. We're going to be joined by Joe Asher. Joe Asher is one of the most pivotal and central figures in the expansion of sports betting in the United States. He was the chief executive officer of William Hill U.S., and he was one of the prime movers and shakers behind the scenes in, in, in bringing the New Jersey sports betting case to a head. Today, he's the president of the sports betting division of IGT, and we're going to cover a lot of topics today. For those who, who've closely been following the debate on legal sports betting, we recently had an anniversary on May 14th. It, it had been four years since the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act was overturned by the United States Supreme Court. And that law was the primary obstacle to the, the expansion of sports betting throughout the United States. And we're going to talk to Joe about the New Jersey case, his role in it, and talk about some of the central developments over the course of that four-year litigation. And then we're going to bring it forward and discuss with him some of the current topics and current legal issues around the sports betting industry. So, Mike, thanks for joining me today. I know we both love the, you know, the sports betting issues and the topic. And this is a Joe is one of the, the, the most knowledgeable people in the industry, and he's been at the forefront of so many key developments. So I think we're going to have fun today going through these many topics with Joe. So welcome aboard, Mike. It's great to co-host our first, no, our second show together. Second, yeah, we did a legislative roundup a few weeks ago covering some of some of the uh, the recent legislations and the potential for for the legalization of, of sports betting and and this is I'm excited too. I mean, Joe Asher is, a, is an absolute legend in this field and he was right at the beginning of the the legalization of sports gambling and has and has worked in numerous different companies and William Hill and now he's with IGT and he definitely has a lot to say and he's got a lot of knowledge on this. But this podcast is sponsored by Underdog Fantasy. Underdog Fantasy is really the best and easiest way for you to play fantasy sports. I mean, you have super easy to use mobile app and the website is really user friendly. And right now, if you sign up with the code conduct, you'll double your first deposit. If you, they'll match up to a hundred dollars. So if you use the code conduct, C-O-N-D-U-C-T, uh, they'll match up to a hundred dollars of your, of your first deposit. And we're in prime time right now for sports. We've got playoffs for the NHL. We've got playoffs for the NBA. We've got MLB in full swing in, they really have these easy pick them games where you can just go, go on and, and pick just over-unders, and it's really, really simple, really easy to use. Head over to uh, Underdog Fantasy Sports. Well, speaking of underdogs, there was probably no greater underdog for many years in the state of New Jersey in the Christie 1, the Christie 2 case, ultimately the Murphy case. We're going to sort of take a walk down memory lane with, with Joe and really dive into the NCAA versus Christie litigations, which were Christie 1 and Christie 2. And as Joe you know, brings brings out on, on the episode, New Jersey lost seven times in a row. They lost at the district court in Christie 1. They lost at the appellate court in Christie 1. Supreme Court denied cert. That There were other pretrial motions. So they, they were shut out in Christie 1. And in Christie 2, they were being shut out. And, you know, the great Ted Olson, one of the, one of the most historically significant lawyers in U.S. history, 
lost seven rulings in a row and ultimately won before the United States Supreme Court. So you don't need to have a 500 record in order to make the Sports Betting Hall of Fame. You just need to win the most important case. And Joe was for many years and still in my mind, the voice of the U.S. sports betting industry. He was there at the beginning and he was so closely associated with the gaming industry that, that, that if you were going to a gaming conference or reading a newspaper article at any point about this issue between 2012 and 2018, he was being quoted in it. He was probably the best spokesperson for the industry and one of the most knowledgeable and central figures in this debate. So we're gonna have him on today to really celebrate the four-year anniversary of PASPA being overturned. So without further ado, Let's kick it over to our interview with the one and only Joe Asher. It is my pleasure to welcome to Conduct at Tremendo, one of the most pivotal and central figures in the growth of the legalized sports betting industry in the United States, the one and only Joe Asher, president of IGT Sports Betting Division, and as many people may recall, the CEO of William Hill U.S., behind the scenes, one of the big movers and shakers in the push to legalize sports betting in the U.S. Joe, how are you? Doing great, Dan. Good to be with you. Thanks. You know, I've, uh, I've often wanted to do a, a sort of a, a little bit of a retrospective on the Christie slash Murphy case. You know, we're only nine days, I believe, removed from the fourth year anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act in a, in a sweeping or at least a majority decision. Do you remember what you were doing at 10 a.m. on the morning of May 14th, 2018? Sure. I was actually home on the treadmill and, you know, we'd been thinking that, you know, for any number of Mondays, I guess, that the result might be coming. I think somebody texted me that the result was out or something, uh, something like that. You know, it's uh, always a, a bit of a flurry because then I uh, started getting a lot of phone calls and texts and we actually had to spend a little bit of time to read the opinion, right? Because if you just go to the last page, as you know, as a lawyer that, you know, it gives you the, you know, the reverse or, or affirmed, but it, yeah, you really need to get into the opinion to figure out what's going on. So anyway, it turned into obviously a pretty hectic day as we first, you know, tried to digest what was in the opinion to understand what the court had ruled. And then, you know, starting very quickly, actually, to make plans to start sports betting in New Jersey. In fact, I caught a very early morning flight the next day. You know, we had a little uh, celebration that evening and on the plane very early the next morning. Do you recall where you celebrated? I, I missed out on that one. We did. We did. We were at the uh, Sahara in Las Vegas, site of one of the William Hill sports books uh, owned by Alex Morello. And we put together an impromptu party for a number of employees. Uh, and it was, it was, we're all happy, of course, with the result. But I will say that the enthusiasm was a bit tempered by the fact that and you know, we understood there's going to be uh, an awful lot of work that was going to be starting early the next morning. So it wasn't one of these, you know, go out and have a great time and you don't have to worry about anything. It was a bit tempered by the understanding of what was to come. You weren't a newcomer to the litigation around sports betting. You go back to Delaware's efforts in 2009 to expand their sports betting lottery offerings to include single game sports wagering. So can, can you describe how that served as the sort of the impetus for you getting involved in, you know, meeting Dennis Drazen in New Jersey, how that led you to having, you know, sort of an involvement in the New Jersey sports betting case from your outpost in, in Las Vegas? Well, I mean, the, the 2009 case was about the scope of Delaware's exemption 
under PASPA or the scope of the grandfather clause. And it it was fairly unique because it only affected a handful of states. I remember, of course, very clearly when we won in the district court in Delaware and then lost in the Court of Appeals. And, and, you know, it was a pretty deflating day to be sure, Uh, but it never addressed the merits of whether or not PASPA itself was constitutional, right? The, The Delaware litigation was only about the scope of Delaware's exemption. There was no challenge to the statute as a whole. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't too long after that. I think I, you know, started speaking with Dennis and got in touch with Dennis. And uh, of course, you know, the, the, you know, the trials and tribulations of the New Jersey sports betting case have been written about extensively and so forth, but probably no one more pivotal to all of that than Dennis. You know, all credit to Governor Christie, of course, who was the governor and the main plaintiff for so long and who kept persevering loss after loss. But, you know, it was quite a team of people who were really pursuing that New Jersey sports betting case. And, you know, you have to give a lot of credit, frankly, to Governor Christie for hiring Ted Olson at the outset, right? When when the litigation started, you know, he, he did not do it any other way than, you know, hiring the best lawyer that you can find for something like this in Ted, who you know, obviously ultimately prevail. I remember for a long time, we, we read these articles about how much money the state of New Jersey was paying in legal fees to Ted Olson, almost like there was this narrative being created that the state was basically throwing all this money away on a losing bet. It turned out to be the best return on investment you could have ever hoped for. And I'm not sure, you know, the money may have been coming from, you know, sort of a casino industry fund as well. I'm not sure where the, the money to pursue the litigation, you know, where within the state accounts it came from, but it was a long, hard road. And you know, it's it's a great lesson in perseverance, right? Depending on how you count it, you know, New Jersey was 0-7, 0-8 at some point. And, and then, you know, they won the one time that ultimately mattered. And, you know, you had Dennis, who was, you know, the guy who was really, you know, the mastermind of the revised New Jersey law, right? It's kind of almost forgotten, of course, that at one point in time, when the Third Circuit ruled against New Jersey, and, you know, Governor Christie, I think, basically said it was time to give up and move on. And then there was a new bill that was passed. And, you know, that ultimately was what went to the Supreme Court. And, and that's kind of almost like a forgotten footnote in the whole thing. But, you know, Dennis uh, never gave up. Well, you know, it's interesting you said that because I read an interview in which you described attending a speech given by Governor Chris Christie in 2011, where he talked about legalized sports betting. And you said you liked how he answered the question about his interaction with a New York Giants fan who was on the one hand happy that the Giants, you know, won the game against Miami 20 to 17, but it was sort of a, a split verdict from his perspective because he didn't win on the parlay bet he had made. And you liked how Christie answered that and it led you to call Dennis, out of the blue, can you can you kind of describe your initial impressions of Dennis and how the two of you you know got together and what sold you on him? Yeah, well, the the speech that you talked about or the talk that you talked about was at the University of Delaware, where uh, Governor Christie was a graduate, and so am I, and for that matter, so is the president. But you know, us Blue Hens are a proud group. But you know, he 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 gave that you know little story about the fan, and you know they won, but they didn't cover, or the guy lost his parlay, whatever it was. It wasn't that long afterwards that I uh, tracked down Dennis's phone number and just cold called him and uh, introduced myself and told him that I wanted to come out and visit with him, and he said sure. And I went and visited him in his box at Monmouth Park because, you know, Dennis is the, the operator of Monmouth Park for the New, New Jersey 
Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association. He had a horse running that day and the horse won. So I thought that was probably going to be a good omen. It was a first time starter, I think, or at least a maiden. And I thought that was a good omen. But over the course of lunch, you know, they got really good crab cakes at Monmouth Park. There are two things actually that became crystal clear in a very, you know, very shortly after meeting Dennis. Number one, this guy was very, very smart. And number two, he was never going to give up. He would never give up. And, you know, look, I I practiced law for a number of years at a big law firm and dealt with a lot of very smart people. And so, you know, I've I've, I've been around, you know, really smart people. And it was pretty clear Dennis was exceptionally bright. You know, he was was willing to just keep going and going and going and going until ultimately his position prevailed. And so, you know, those two things were evident at the outset. And then that's what led to William Hill doing a deal with Monmouth where, I think we put up a million dollars and built a sports bar with the idea that that would one day become a sports book. And I had no idea, you know, if that meant it was going to be a sports book in 2012 or 2013 or 2015 or 2018, like it became, or 2025, right? I had no idea when it was going to happen, but, you know, was pretty confident that one day it would. Well, you mentioned that, he, you know, your perception on Dennis was that he wasn't the type that was ever going to give up. And he was also, a, a, he started strong by having his, his, his horse win that day. So it served as a positive omen. But the New Jersey case took on a completely opposite dimension. You started losing, losing after losing after losing. And that resolve at some point must have been tested. Was there ever a point at which you said, well, this is it. We're going to have to turn our attention to Congress. Certainly when you had the Supreme Court deny certiorari and then the next day, the legislature introduces that partial repeal law that attempts to repeal state law prohibitions on sports betting only at tracks and state licensed casinos. And then, and then Christie, Governor Christie vetoes that bill. So at that point, how close was your team and, and, and your, your sort of the stakeholders? How close were you to pulling the plug? And what changed over the course of that summer leading into September of 2014 that made you think Governor Christie would change his mind? Well, you know, look, there, there was nothing for us to pull our, to plug on, right? We had already, you know, made the, uh, the deal to build out the sports bar. So that was already done. And so there wasn't really anything for us to pull the plug on. And, you know, simultaneously with the New Jersey litigation, you know, there were discussions going on around what might be able to be done in Congress and the AGA, the American Gaming Association, under the leadership of Jeff Freeman and Sarah Slane, you know, had, had really started, I think, to do just really good work in establishing relationships with the sports leagues and the media companies to start to take away some of the mystery, I think, for the leagues, right? Because there really hadn't been any conversation at, at a significant level between, you know, bookmakers and the sports leagues, right? There, there had been some interaction with the gaming industry per se, but I made the point early on in you know, my discussions with some of the folks at the leagues that, you know, look, you know, we share an office building with Wells Fargo and, and New York Life. You know, it's just a typical office environment, you know, to try to do away from the, you know, the mystique of, you know, the smoke filled dark, dark room, you know, with the, the guy with, the, you know, the hairy chest and the shirt unbuttoned halfway, you know, halfway down and, and, the, and the cigar in his mouth. Right. So I, th- I think there was a lot of that sort of work that the AGA did that was impactful. And I recall, you know, the first time I ever met Jeff was at a, a restaurant called Bistro B in Washington, D.C. I'd been in Delaware, took the train down to meet him. And, you know, historically, the role of the AGA had really been to 
largely to prevent bad things from happening in the gaming industry. And sports betting represented an opportunity for the AGA to do something affirmatively positive for its members. I thought it was an, an issue that you know would really um, unite the industry and the industry could, you could unite behind. And Jeff did such a good job with it. And so you had that all going on at the same time the litigation's happening. And then, you know, I think of just a couple of days before the oral argument, George Will, who, you know, very highly regarded conservative columnist, you know, basically wrote an op-ed piece saying that PASPA should be overturned. And so you, you know, you, you started to see this, well, certainly lack of opposition, if not outright support, you know, from, from members of the public at large and, and folks in Congress or in state legislatures. And I think, you know, all those things helped create the environment which led to the opinion. The NFL, the NBA, and the major professional sports leagues were still vehemently opposed to your efforts to try to, you know, overturn passports, win in court. How much of their opposition was was rooted in a desire to avoid what they would fear would be a patchwork of of, of state regulations with a regulatory race to the bottom? You know, they're they're sort of messaging on that versus wanting to proceed on their own timetable through a federal framework? How much of it was authentic opposition and how much of it was, you know, more like cynical trying to control the industry rather than oppose it? Well, you know, a couple of thoughts there, Dan. It's, you know, number one, of course, let's not forget the op-ed piece that Adam Silver wrote in the New York Times in which he called for the repeal of PASPA and the legalization of sports betting, right? And spoke of you know, the need to turn the page and come into the internet era and take it out of the shadows and into the sunlight and all that sort of stuff, right? You know, and that preceded the Supreme Court's decision by a number of years. But yes, despite that op-ed piece, you know, the, the NBA was still on the other side of the issue in the New Jersey litigation. And, you know, to some extent, the sports leagues had been opposed to sports betting for so long, it was very hard, I think, for them to all of a sudden not be opposed to it anymore. Right. And to some extent, I think the Supreme Court just got them out of a box that they had put themselves into with their opposition because it was hard. They'd been making these arguments for literally for decades. And it wasn't too long before the Supreme Court's decision when the commissioners, you know, they testified under oath about the, you know, the terrible harm that would befall the leagues if, you know, sports betting somehow became legal. And, you know, so we went from that to within the last you know year or two, FanDuel and, and DraftKings and Caesars being official sports betting partners of the NFL. Not only that, but if you're going to go to the Super Bowl next year in Glendale, Arizona, you're going to have to really avert your eyes to avoid the MGM Sportsbook at the stadium, which is going to be hosting the Super Bowl. I mean, did you ever imagine back in 2016 when you were licking your wounds from the latest loss in Christie 2, that five, six years later, you'd be going to a Super Bowl game where there was a sports book at the stadium. Yeah, I mean, you know, and of course, you look what's, what exists already in, in uh, Washington, D.C. at the Capital One Arena in the Caesar Sportsbook now. It's Caesar Sportsbook with, you know, Ted Leontis, of course, one of the most visible owners. Ted owns both the Capitals and the Wizards, who's been you know, very positive on sports betting for a while. So, you know, I, look. The leagues have their own internal dynamics and, and, and how they all work. So I, I wouldn't want to try to guess what, you know, what was going on in their minds. But, you know, very clearly, you know, they were in a box from, from the 
opposition for so long from the you know sworn statements under oath and you know Gary Bettman who I've got great affection for you know Gary was asked you know what changed your mind on sports betting and he says the Supreme Court right <laughs> so you know it really is fascinating to see just how quickly you know the leagues that fought it for so long have now actively embraced it and I think there's a lot of positive that's come from that I think you said something perfect that about the sports leagues that they have been opposed to, to sports gambling and sports betting so for so long that it's it's almost like they're just forcefully they're afraid of change or they don't want it. I want to make a comparison here. I think it's very similar to to certain states, right? Right, like New York was so opposed to it even after Passa fell. New York was one of the states that everyone thought was going to jump right into it, and it didn't happen that way. And then we just saw recently where there was a lawsuit that New York filed, the attorney general's office filed against DraftKings and FanDuel, and then they had to flip it completely on its head where then they were defending the lawsuit that just came out, White versus Cuomo, which was attacking Daily Fantasy Sports. So you have this interesting dynamic of somebody who has been, like you, like you said, uh, so opposed. Where do you see certain states or are certain states in that similar situation now where they have been opposed for it so long that it's just not it's they're, they're not able to agree or come to to some sort of agreement on a bill where they can actually approve this? Well, look, I, I'm not sure that you you have a lot of states, um, certainly not in the major ones that I can think of, where you know the legislators are, are, are necessarily opposed to sports betting, right? I mean, I, I think now there's you know, such a positive sentiment around it. You know, the the daily fantasy lawsuits in in New York and and elsewhere. I think that was a little bit different, right? Because the issue there was just whether or not the conduct that was happening was legal or illegal under the existing law at the time versus, you know, the broader policy question of, you know, should sports betting be legal? And, you know, now so much of it is, you know, even when I think there's general support for sports betting, the question becomes, well, what does the bill look like? How does it happen? Right. Who gets the licenses? Do the incumbent casinos get licenses? Do sports teams get licenses? Are there licenses at large for online operators and so forth? And, you know, and then in California, you know, you have the question, well, what do you do in California where, you know, the tribes have long held certain gaming rights in the state and how does sports betting fit into that system? So you've got two referenda that appear to be going before the voters, right? One, they want a line bill championed by a number of online gambling companies and the tribes and racetracks retail only bill, you know, that the tribes are behind. You know, Florida, of course, you had the compact with the Seminoles that wound up falling to federal court challenge. So it's not really a question of, you know, for or against sports betting as much as, you know, how's it going to work in the given state? There may be exceptions to that, I suppose. We'll see how things play out in Texas where there's, you know, a lot of jockeying around and so forth. But, you know, look, I'm of the view that one day sports betting is going to be legal in all 50 states, right? I won't give you a date so you can't say I was wrong. But, you know, I do think there's widespread public support for it. Why do you think Utah will join the group? Because the conventional wisdom is it's going to be 49 states, but not Utah, maybe not Hawaii, but you've long said it's going to be all 50 states. What's the impetus to make it happen in a conservative state like Utah, where there's very traditional religious viewpoints and objection to gambling in general? Yeah, look, Kansas is a pretty conservative state. 
right? They just passed a sports betting bill. You know, Utah has professional sports teams. The casinos in Wendover do a pretty good business, you know, and, and those are all folks coming over from the greater Salt Lake City area. So, you know, again, I'm not putting a date on it, but I, I just think that people like to bet on sports. So sports continues to take up a greater and greater and greater share of thought in the American culture. And it's really just become bigger and bigger, right? The NFL is just a, a, a juggernaut. It's almost a year round business now. I mean, look at all the people who came to Vegas for the draft and it was a multi-day, you know, media special, you know, covering the draft. I mean, is it real exciting to to watch, you know, the third round and see who's going to be picked, you know, midway through the pack in the third round? But yet, you know, it's become a big thing where people tune in and, you know, Tom Brady retired, unretired now, you know, and, and, and all that stuff. And he's, you know, standing on the middle of pitch, you know, at, at Old Trafford after a Manchester United game with Ronaldo and just the pervasiveness of sports in the culture. I think one of the things that about sports is people like, you know, they have an opinion on the outcome and then they want to back their opinion for a reason. A lot of it is just validation on being right. I mean, we're in the midst, uh, you know, of the NBA and the NHL playoffs as we're recording this. And it's you know a way for the, the, the fan to just get a little bit more engaged in it. So I don't think of any state as being you know, a lost cause when it comes to the legalization of sports betting. Transition from that topic and, and connect the fan engagement to the sports teams beginning to want direct involvement in the state ecosystem. Now, you know, you negotiate the very first, I guess, in arena sports book deal with Ted Leonsis and Monumental Sports. But from my understanding, that was like a, a landlord, uh, you know, tenant type situation where the team and, and its ownership were not directly sharing in the revenues or, or any, any direct participation. Now we're beginning to see in states like Ohio, Maryland, Arizona, Missouri, where, where sports teams are either being granted or it's proposed to grant teams actual licenses, whether it's in their name or they get to control who their mobile sports betting provider is. So do you see this intensification of team level involvement in the sort of operator process? Do you see that as a good thing or natural outgrowth of the expansion of sports betting? Are there any negatives associated with that? Or do you think that that's a good thing overall because it builds the retail business and, and it brings more customers into the fold? Well, look, and the Arizona Coyotes got one of the licenses in Arizona, and they're operating. They've called it Sahara Bets. It's a different legal entity, but you know they're they're both owned by Alex Morello. He made the decision to not partner with an existing operator, but to operate himself. And he happens to be using the IGT platform to do it, which is you know which which is great for our business. And it gives you know and, and anybody who knows Alex knows he's a very smart guy. So he's you know put a lot of thought into it. Look, I think you'll see most teams partner with somebody, you know, as Ted did in DC and you know as the Arizona Cardinals have done and you mentioned with MGM, the FanDuels and the Sun Stadium and so forth. So look, I think you can get into you know very particular questions around you know, should they be able to have betting on, you know, on their games? And I remember back at Riviera, you know, a fellow who owned the Milwaukee Bucks also had an ownership interest in the Riviera. And so the Riviera could not take bets on the on the Bucks games. And I think presently the Silverton here in Las Vegas, you know, they, they have the LA Lakers games off the board. I, you know, I think that's almost 
pointless because everybody knows what the line is. Yeah, they're just going to go bet it somewhere else. But if you want to have some controls around that type of stuff, I think fine. But, you know, I think the broader opportunity, you know, for teams is this engagement that you spoke about. Speaking of which, uh, congratulations on the deal with the Coyotes. There's almost no chance that that franchise will ever leave Arizona. I mean, one of the few states that grants professional sports teams a license for both in, in-person betting and online betting. I mean, he would play in a movie theater if it meant staying in Arizona. So I always found that interesting when he ran into some of those lease issues with, I think it was the city of Glendale and what he's going to do next. Under no circumstances is he ever going to leave the state of Arizona. He has something so few other professional sports team owners have. And certainly in the NHL, he's probably one of just a couple of teams that have that right. You know, look, the, the arena, Glendale's a tough spot for a hockey arena, right? It's one thing, you know, for folks to trek out to Glendale for the football games, you know, eight or nine weekends a year. You know, when you have a sport with 40 home games to trek out to Glendale from where, you know, uh, a lot of the fan base lives is pretty tough. So, you know, moving to Tempe and, you know, there's the sort of the, you know, the temporary tendency to use the arena at the college there while something else is built. I mean, I think that's ultimately going to be a very positive transition for the Coyotes. And of course, they're going to be loaded up, you know, with a lot of high draft picks as well. Uh, Six years from now, they're going to pan out. You know, you and I are both, you know, major hockey fans, but these 18-year-olds, it takes like three, four years for them to kind of ripen into decent players. I mean, you watch the Rangers. I mean, it took uh, Kako. He's in his third year and he hasn't quite popped yet. So I admire the rebuilding plan, but it's going to take a while, I think. Well, look, Alex, his first venture into the casino industry is when he bought the Grand Sierra in Reno, which had a, a Lucky's sports book, which was the company that I sold to William Hill. So, you know, I've known Alex since you know, he, he got into the you know, casino business. And if you've seen what he's done there from taking a property that was losing a lot of money and turning into one that's hugely profitable, uh, you know that, you know, you, you'd never bet against the guy. I would just never bet against the guy. And, you know, I was down at the Sarah a couple of days ago, and the transformation at the property under his ownership is really striking. You know, if, if you want to bet against the Coyotes in the long term, you better do so at your own peril. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll remember that. And uh, I, have the, you know, I have no expertise in the area of, of knowing his, his track record, so I'll take your word for it. So let's go from that success to back to the situation in California, you've long made known your love and affection for Del Mar Racetrack, and you spend your summers at Del Mar. I'm wondering when we're gonna get the announcement that Del Mar is gonna partner with IGT for sports betting in California, because I wanna kind of use that to frame the debate around California that you alluded to a few minutes ago. And I wanna get into it in a little while, but I think you're like the perfect partner for Del Mar when they go live, if and when they go live next year? Well, look, we'll see what happens with the, with the referenda. There's no deal with, you know, that, that IGT is involved in currently with, uh, with Del Mar, but, you know, they, they have been working with somebody else who I know quite well, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, I, I really don't know how this referenda is going to play out. I mean, it's possible that both pass, possible that one pass, possible, of course, the zero pass. I mean, that's going to be up to the voters in California. And, you know, obviously there's going to be quite a bit of money that's spent in advance of the election this year in uh, in California. I'm going to be out in Del Mar this summer, looking forward to opening day. In fact, I was talking about Del Mar, you know, just a few minutes before we're recording this. Uh, it's, a, it's a great place. I certainly do love going out there. One day, 
we'll, we'll see what, you know, what, what the voters say, but you could very well have a, a sports book at Del Mar and I'm sure it'll be a great one. Will they require sport jackets and, and long sleeve shirts? I, I read up on the dress code. I couldn't believe that in the summertime, you have to wear a sports jacket. Well, in the turf club, if you go to, I never go to the turf club. I, I couldn't be bothered to wear a jacket, you know, going to Del Mar. I mean, you know, I, I show up in a polo shirt and shorts and sit outside. But if you want to go into the turf club, you do have to get dressed up. Yeah. At the risk of uh, alienating some stakeholder in the industry, do you have a preference as to which of the two initiatives pass? You know, I think that's, you know, we'll, we'll see what the voters decide. I mean, that's obviously going to be up to, to the people to decide. And there's going to be um, no shortage of, uh, campaign spending to encourage them to vote one way or the other. How about no shortage of litigation? One of the issues I see surfacing, and I think the tired narrative is that, you know, when you have two initiatives, you really have none. It's like mutually assured destruction. I kind of see things from the other vantage point. And what happens if they both pass? I mean, they both have appealing characteristics. The online initiative could raise a half a billion dollars or more annually for homelessness. And of course, on the retail initiative, it's something that the tribes are very good at in California. They're very good at campaigning. They Back in 1998, they, 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 they passed Proposition 5. And in 1999, they passed Proposition 1A, each time with over 60% of the vote. So I can't imagine that the tribes will fail. The question is whether the online sports betting initiative will also clear the 50% threshold. And then the question I have for you is, what do you see uh, ensuing if they both pass? Can they coexist together or do you think there'll be litigation? Short answer is I don't know. Given the country we live in and the proclivity for litigation, uh, you'd expect there to potentially be some litigation, no matter what happens, I suppose, or if you know one of the two pass. And to how that you know might work, I think we just have to, you know, have to wait and see. You have tribal gaming is is, is such an important part of the economy in California. And look, let's, let's not forget, you know, the origins uh, around tribal gaming and, and, you know, what Congress, you know, the rights that Congress chose to grant, you know, in that area. And I think that kind of gets lost in, you know, the modern day view of it. And, you know, sports betting, look, I live in Nevada where there's mobile sports betting. You know, I've got four apps on my phone and, you know, it's pretty easy, you know, for me to make a bet, you know, whenever I might want to, uh, to make a bet and to do it in a legal and regulated way. And, and, you know, that of course is a positive thing, how things play out in California, I think is any, you know, it's anybody's guess. And look, I mean, you know, I, I had somebody tell me recently that, you know, given the public sentiment uh, around politics these days and, you know, inflation and, and, and war in, in Russia and all in Ukraine, that it's hard to get a yes vote for anything. So no way anything's going to pass just, you know, negative voter sentiment. And I've had somebody tell me the exact opposite. Oh, yeah, people in California, you know, they're seeing the national advertising and, and you know, uh, you know, Peyton and Eli Manning and Archie Manning and Cooper and Halle Berry and J.B. Smoove and all those Caesars commercials. And they want to know how come they can't do it as well, because you can do it in Nevada, you can do it in Arizona and so forth. So, you know, you talk to different people, you'll get completely diametrically opposed opinions on the topic. And, you know, we'll find out in a number of months what happens. Yeah, I mean, the issue that I'm tracking, assuming they both pass, before we move on to the next topic, the issue that I'm, I'm really uh, intrigued about is whether the two initiatives are in conflict with one another. And then that's going to set up a legal battle over whether they're in conflict, which aspects of, of the retail are in conflict with certain aspects of the mobile, vice versa. And it could set up a little bit of a delay 
in trying to sort through that because I think when you go out and, and have a choice as to how, when, and where to make a wager, maybe there's an inherent conflict between should you, should you bet on your mobile device or, or drive somewhere and bet in person. And then there's some language in the tribal initiative that at least in my mind raises issues as to whether there's a conflict. And if there's a conflict, then they both can't pass. So that's sort of the forward thinking issue that I'm, I'm focusing on, but it assumes that both pass and most people are taking the view that both will not pass. Hopefully one day we can make a bet at Del Mar racetrack and, and, you know, I'll get out there, you know, the first day it's legal and hopefully you'll, you'll join me. As the operator. No, no, just as a fan. I mean, I go, you know, I go as a fan, love, love to go there every, uh, every summer, as you pointed out. I think just before the transition, I think to get to where you want to be, which is all 50 states, right? All 50 states have, have legalized sports betting. And, and I agree with you. I think we'll get there and time will tell. I think the world, um, I guess the world, but the, the United States was shocked after January of this year when New York finally went live and they did $2 billion, just about $2 billion in the first month of wagers. And I think BetMGM a couple months ago estimated that if California goes live, it'll push the North American market to somewhere around $37 billion. So I think, I think to, to your credit here, if, to get to that 50 mark, I think if California goes live in one way or the other, that, that it will definitely, other states will, will likely fall or, or see the value that, that they're gaining from it. But another issue that we see is college sports and, and whether or not, and depending on the state and the legislation, whether or not you can bet on colleges or if you, they limit it to betting on colleges within your own state or outside of your state, preventing you. And now we have the world of name, image, and likeness and student athletes and, and you talk about the vulnerability of student athletes. Uh, you know, you have this old scene of a, of a bookie walking up to a student athlete being like, hey, like miss a few free throws or something like that, right? You you have all these people who don't want betting on college sports and, and now you have name, image, and likeness. And I just want to kind of get your take on the current landscape of college betting and where it's going to go moving forward. A lot in that question, well, a couple of <laughs> things. So number one, I don't like this idea that, you know, we're going to have betting on pro sports, but not on college because, you, you know, customers are not going to bet with you know, a legal bookmaker for pro when they still have to bet, you know, with the illegal bookie for college. And so I think that is a, a counterproductive way to approach it. And, you know, the no betting on in-state teams, I'm not a fan of that either, though, you know, look, that, that's the law in New Jersey and, and the effort to change it fail. So, you know, you have to obviously ultimately respect the will of the voters. But, you know, the, the, the idea that, you know, that bookie is walking up to some college kid and saying, hey, I mean, you know, whether you can bet in-state or not, you know, that risk is still there, right? I mean, you know, if, if somebody's trying to get into cahoots with a college athlete in New Jersey, but he can't bet on the team in New Jersey, well, you know, you just go across the river into Manhattan or, or into Pennsylvania. So, you know, the idea that there's any real, you know, integrity benefit to, you know, these in-state school exceptions, I, I just don't agree with that at all. When you had the point shaving, you know, scandals in college basketball 30, 40 years ago, that came to light because of unusual betting activity that was reported by Las Vegas bookmakers. And that's how it came to light to begin with. So I don't think you should have those, you know, prohibitions on betting on college since, you know, people clearly love to bet on college sports. Now, you know, the name image, image and likeness stuff, boy, oh boy, is that, I mean, you know, all you got to do is listen to Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher go at it. 
And, you know, I mean, that's clearly changing the landscape around college sports in a pretty big way. You know, look, for, for so long, these athletes have been creating tremendous value for the schools, getting tuition and room board. Okay, fair enough. But, you know, nowhere commensurate, you know, to the value that they're creating. And, and of course, now they can participate in that value. Um, I think that's a whole, you know, sort of separate discussion from the sports betting aspect of it. I think I know the answer to this, but do you see the future of college sports being involved with sports books? Do you see stadiums being named after the sports books and having live sports books in stadiums on colleges? Well, I mean, William Hill had a deal with UNR and with UNLV when I was there. We did deal, you know, we did deals with them. I remember reading it. Points bet had done some deal in Colorado when it was the first time, and it wasn't because of you know of you know, William Hill had done these deals in in Nevada. And by the way, at one point in time, Nevada had that rule where you know you couldn't have UNLV games on the board. And then you know I don't know how long ago it was 15, 20 years ago that rule went away, and you could bet on them. So and I think we had the William Hill logo on the scores table at running Rebel games at one point. In, and it was in the arena. So, you know, that sort of stuff I think is already, is, is already there. Look, I think it's, you know, tricky to have a sports book, you know, in, on, on a college campus, just cause you get into the underage gaming issues. And, you know, as an operator, I think you'd be, you know, you'd be pretty sensitive um, around that, but in terms of advertising and the general brand awareness and so forth, that's already going on. And I think that just continues. And I think that Caesars do a deal with LSU, if I'm not mistaken. Advertising kind of broaches the question of what's going on in Massachusetts at the moment. Massachusetts is, or at least on the Senate side of things, they propose some very stringent guidelines for advertising by sports books. I believe the Senate bill proposes a whistle-to-whistle ban on sports book ads that begins five minutes before a live telecast, continues through and including the end plus five minutes after, and it would apply to you know the live, live televised events as well as the streaming of sporting events, as well as there being a sort of a limited ban on, on in-stadium and in-arena sportsbook ads. So when you take these proposed guidelines on top of what could be a very high tax rate of 35% and limited market access in a state like Massachusetts, which is proposing uh, maybe no more than 12 licenses, can you talk about the challenges that pose to the industry as a whole and the dangers or potential downsides of having, you know, minimal sportsbook advertising during a game? Well, look, I mean, you know, this whole topic around advertising can almost have a whole separate podcast around it. And, and, you know, there have been pretty significant advertising restrictions imposed in Europe. So it's, it's actually not a surprise that somebody's even talking about it now in, in the U.S. Uh, the way they are in, in Massachusetts. The difficulty at the start of the market, of course, is advertising is important to alert the public at large that, you know, they now have legal options, you know, how they can bet. Right. We know it. Right. Because we're, you know, we work in the industry and close to the industry. And we're highly attuned to it. You know, but a lot of people, they just don't know. Right. They just don't know. I mean, and, and they in fact, I, I was uh, back east over spring break, had dinner with someone in my wife's family. He had an account with an illegal offshore bookmaker and he had no idea it was illegal. He just thought sports betting was legal in Pennsylvania. And he didn't know that the company that he was betting with was illegal. And I'm not going to mention them because I don't want to give them any free advertising. But general public, they just don't know. And so if you prohibit advertising or limit advertising, 
you make it harder to educate the public on this legal regulated option that is going to generate tax revenue for the state. So that's you know, clearly one of the arguments for it. You know, it's also pretty obvious to me anyway, that there's, you know, that there's going to be an increase in people developing gambling problems as a result of the legalization of sports betting because sports books are advertising their product and it's good advertising, right? They're spending lots and lots of money on it. You know, and how many times have you seen Jamie Foxx in the fountains of the Bellagio and, and, you know, the, the Mannings and so forth. And so it's inevitable that, you know, more people will bet and that'll lead to, you know, more people developing a gambling problem and having the problems that flow from that negatively impacting their families and so forth. And so, you know, I think it's important that everybody, you know, be very cognizant of that. Striking the right balance around that is incredibly difficult. And it's actually made more difficult by the fact that, you know, we, we operate on a state by state basis and gambling historically has been left to the states to decide. And so if you have one set of rules with respect to Massachusetts sports betting, well, you know, what do you do on Rhode Island's just to the south? There's no such restriction. So it's pretty complicated. One of the reasons why there is such a, I remember hearing a regulator complain about, you know, if there's too much advertising and if the operators don't do something about it, we will. You know, okay, that's nice and easy to say, but look at how many operators are licensed. And, you know, I was in Delaware at the beginning of the NFL season last year. And I was watching this Sunday night game in my hotel room. And, you know, it's the Philadelphia TV station that I was watching in Delaware. And, you know, there, there might've been one or two commercials for Caesars and one or two for MGM and one or two for FanDuel and one or two for DraftKings. There was one for, for Win, and there was one for Bet Rivers and there was one for PointsBet, right? It's all these different operators, right? It's not any one operator that was causing the problem. It's the fact that there were so many operators and the issue wasn't the content of the advertising. It was just the repetitive, the cumulative effect of all the advertising. How do you say, you know, company A or company B should do something different in that environment when, when it wasn't any one company that was doing something problematic? Where I do have an issue with advertising is any sort of advertising, you know, that gets directed to children, for instance, Right my kids happen to watch do perfect videos on on youtube and you know that that tends to get you know quite a few younger viewers i don't think sports betting companies should be advertising in in videos where there's such a big proportion of of the viewership is going to be minors you know but but that's a whole separate you know point of it but anyway this you know the the, the advertising questions and and thoughts and and you know where we go on this stuff you know you could go on for a long time on before we go to our lightning round and do quick hit topics on, you know, uh, Las Vegas, the Oakland A's, Raiders, Gerard Gallant, and so forth, I want to ask you one more question about a, a policy issue relating to sports betting and seeing some of the tax rates, you know, spike up in certain jurisdictions. I remember when you testified in front of the New York State Senate Gaming, Wagering, and something else committee, I forgot the exact name, but you gave a tutorial to the committee members about sports book profits and tried to explain how profits end up being determined. And it was a very narrow profit margin with a lot of risk being thrown onto the sports book. So how do you react to the recent spate of jurisdictions 
that now are beginning to tax sportsbook operators either through competitive bidding or in a just straight tax rate at 51% in, in, in Rhode Island and New Hampshire, which were competitively bid situations. But now Massachusetts is proposing 35%, Pennsylvania's at 34%. And we have so many of these large states remain high taxing states for sportsbook operators. So how do you respond to that? And what can you tell lawmakers in Massachusetts about how to approach this issue? Well, when you look at it with the fact that one of the advantages to legalizing sports betting is to try to supplant the illegal market, you have to be cognizant of the fact that the illegal market pays 0% in taxes, right? They're criminals. They're not, you know, they're not paying taxes, right? They may be operating offshore. It might be the corner bookie like you know, my dad's bookie in Wilmington back in the day. The higher you make the tax rate, the harder it is for the legal market to supplant it. Now, what you've seen in the early days of New York, for instance, was, you know, the massive advertising around sports betting. You know, friends were telling me all about it. The sign-up offers that you were getting. I mean, you know, I think at one point Caesars had the $3,000 deposit match and if you knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody, you could get even more kind of thing. And, and you know, that's obviously been ratcheted back. But, you know, I saw it in Arizona. I was out in Arizona for a kid's soccer tournament with my son. And, you know, the advertising was all throughout my Facebook and Twitter feeds with, you know, $1,000 sign-up offers and so forth. In the interim, you know, you've had the stock market really, you know, take a cleaver to the valuations of sports betting companies, as well as people start to focus on profitability, you know, coming from sports betting companies. And so, you know, it's clearly harder to compete with the illegal market, harder to be profitable. That ultimately will affect operations. But, you know, look, the the companies who who pursued a license and bid the 51% in New York, you know, I mean, they're all big boys and they all knew what they were doing. And so, you know, maybe over time, they, they try to lobby for a change to that. But, you know, the very easy rejoinder was, well, you signed up for it. So it's tough. I mean, it's pretty rare when taxes go down in the gambling industry, right? It does happen. It does happen. But it's pretty rare, right? They usually go in the opposite direction. Joe, you've been a, for now, a relatively long time Las Vegas resident. The city has transformed into a sports mecca. Now you have Las Vegas Golden Knights, the Las Vegas Raiders, and possibly the Las Vegas Athletics. Can you talk about the sports environment in Nevada and in particular your support of the Golden Knights? Well, the Las Vegas A's, we'll see how that plays out. It's kind of one of these on again, off again sort of things. Although I read an article today that suggested, you know, there might be some effort between the government and the A's to try to make it work. But Golden Knights, it's just been great from Las Vegas. You know, I, I wasn't a particularly big hockey fan. I wasn't a hockey fan at all. I'd go to a game, or, you know, here and there once a year just for something to do. Golden Knights come to town. I see you on the ice all the time, posing for photos. I mean, you, you are like the, probably the, one of the most synonymous or recognizable supporters of the Golden Knights. So what what flipped the switch for you? Yeah, I, look, I think I caught the Golden Knights fever. When they came to town, it was it was great. Everybody really got into it. Of course, that first year was the magical season. And then you start to become a fan of the game. You know, all, all credit. You know, Jim Murin doesn't get nearly the uh, credit he deserves for bringing the Golden Knights to Las Vegas. But he was, you know, he was a guy who was in uh, Gary Bettman's ear way back when and telling him that, you know, Las Vegas would support a team. I was at the Target earlier today 
And it was the same target where, you know, a couple of years ago, William Carlson, who was a forward for the Golden Knights, was shopping one day. And it was like, you know, the Beatles at JFK Airport, I think. I mean, I heard about it from so many people that, you know, Carlson was shopping at the target. Yeah, Vegas really got into hockey. They really rallied around the team. I think the decision to fire Gerard Gallant was just an atrocious decision. You know, he's the toast of the town in New York these days. And, you know, the Rangers are in a position to make a really good run. And it's great seeing them behind the bench and, you know, teamed up again with Ryan Reeves, who, of course, was a, a great fan favorite here in town. In Las Vegas, it was a very disappointing year for the Golden Knights. I find it a little bit inconsistent that they fired DeBoer, but not McCrimmon. But, you know, that's obviously, you know, the owner's choice. You know, all the while, you know, the Golden Knights are, are out of the playoffs and, you know, in the and Gerard Gallant's toast of the town in New York City. I wouldn't under, underestimate the change that Ryan Reeves has brought about within that locker room. His, his pregame speeches are like appointment viewing. The way he gets the team, you know, focused and, and, and motivated and just so charged up. One of the best, you know, one of the best individuals I've ever seen in a locker room with those pregame speeches. But I think Gallant's strength is that he knows to give the players control over their own locker room. You know, New York's ha- had, had coaches in the past like John Tortorella, you know, David Quinn, they just kind of sucked all the oxygen out of the room because they had to be sort of the alpha male. I mean, Gerard Gallant comes walking in and you just know he is. He doesn't have to prove a point. And I think he automatically earns respect the moment he walks into that locker room and he gives the players the freedom and the, the rope to make mistakes and not feel as if they're going to be benched for two or three games. And, you know, occasionally he has to send a message. But in my lifetime of watching Rangers hockey, I think he's he's been one of the most effective coaches that I've seen come across the pike. I mean, just come, consider where they were last year not in the playoffs. And now this year, 110 points or whatever they have, they're in the second round and maybe they have a shot at making the conference finals. So I think that's a lot of credit to Gerard Gallant, but what went wrong for him in Las Vegas? I can't figure it out. He took, he took an inaugural team to the finals. Look, I think a lot of people are still trying to figure it out. The best guess anybody gives you, of course, is that the board was available and, you know, having been fired in San Jose, you know, it was just sort of the shine, you know, the shiny new toy. And, you know, the fact that they fired him like two weeks before he was going to coach the all-star game for the first time in his career on the road in Ottawa, as I recall, uh, it was a complete head scratcher and something I disagreed with at the time. And, you know, obviously disagree with, uh, you know, to this day. And I'm a big Gallant fan. I really, uh, um, really like him. You know, it's funny, you know, that time I was on 60 minutes, uh, we actually recorded this segment at the New Jersey Devils Arena. It was the night that the uh, the Golden Knights were playing the Devils that day. And I happened to, to be looking for a bathroom to find a place to tie my tie. And I ran into Gallant as he was uh, in the in the locker room. I kind of stumbled by mistake into the, you know, the Golden Knights locker room. I've just been a big fan and I'm just tickled pink that he's doing well in New York. Well, you're welcome to join the New York Rangers bandwagon at any time. There's no quit in New York. And hopefully well, I had them last night. I, I had him yesterday. I thought coming back, you know, to New York, they were plus 105. I bet them yesterday at Circa. So I was pretty happy with that result. All right. Uh, before we close out, and might, maybe Mike will have a question, too. But I want to ask you some kind of quick hit questions that I've always wondered about the New Jersey sports betting litigation. If you can't answer, I'll understand. But were you really going to launch a sports book at Monmouth Park Racetrack in October of 2014 if the leagues hadn't sued. I remember there was that sort of game of chicken. You were, you were running these commercials 
and you were going to be operating under this like partial repeal law where, you know, you were going to have the, you know, sold out Monmouth Park racetrack and William Hill operated sportsbook. And of course, the leagues file suit in court a couple of days before that, and they seek a motion for a temporary restraining order, preliminary injunction. Can we finally get at the truth of whether that was ever off? Yeah, it's a great question. You got a, you got a good memory to remember all that. We had, we had people on the scene, you know, helping to set up everything, you know, whether or not we were ever going to actually take a bet. You know, I, I don't think we had ever made a final decision around that, but, you know, we were certainly setting it up. Well, I, I think that created the uh, sort of the opening for the leagues to seek emergency injunctive relief. You needed an immediate threat of injury. So my theory all these years is that this was just nothing more than a legal tactic to tee the issue up for emergency injunctive relief and put it on a fast track to the appellate court because without it, you know, maybe the leagues don't sue right away. I don't know. Am I am I out of left field on that? Was this? No, a- you're not. You're not out of left field, other than in supposing that there was harm that would befall the leagues had they actually taken bets. I think the the subsequent history clearly proves that was not the case. Okay, another question related to that: if the Supreme Court had decided the issue on narrow grounds statutorily and said that this partial repeal law was valid and that the league's you know, attempted use of PASPA to override it uh, was a non-starter because it wasn't an affirmative authorization and didn't fit within any of the prohibitions under PASPA. Would you have been ready to operate a sports book in an unlicensed environment? Would that have been something you were prepared to do if you had won on those narrow grounds? I mean, we never thought it was going to turn out on such a narrow basis. And even before the argument, I thought that was once they took the case, it was hard for me to see why, why take the case to, you know, to try to come up with some really narrow argument. And then, of course, you know, the chief justice's question at the oral argument to the lawyer representing the DOJ, I think it was, it was pretty obvious they were never going to rule in such a narrow fashion. I've got a pitch for you. I mean, when you talk about the history, you know, think about where sports fitting is today. And it basically rose from sort of the, you know, the, the, the dustbin back in 2016. It was almost dead and buried. And five, six years later, look at how this industry has developed. And none of this would have been possible without your contribution, without Dennis Drazen, without Governor Christie's, you know, leap of faith on that partial repeal law. There are probably a a, a small group of people who are singularly responsible for this industry taking off. You're one of them. And that's sort of exemplified by your induction into the Sports Betting Hall of Fame. But I want to take it to the next level. Well, before you do, I wouldn't I wouldn't put myself in that category at all. And, and, And I'm not just being overly humble about it. I mean, Dennis... Governor Christie, Ted Olson, right? They were the real, you know, key people in the whole thing. I think Jeff Freeman, as I mentioned earlier, played such a critical role in the whole thing. I mean, I was there cheering them on and giving my two cents and all that kind of thing. But you had you those, had those in the, the game, guys. No, Joe, you had skin in the game. You invested a million dollars in a sports book that looked like a sports bar. And without your financial investment and 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 ongoing support for these efforts. Who knows what ultimately would have ever happened? It may have uh, it may have never come to pass. So the idea that I have is, I think there needs to be a Netflix movie. We're going to call it The Wild East. I already have the idea now that I've shared it with thousands of people who are going to be listening to this podcast. I think the story does need to be told someday. You have to be 
a character in this movie? And why hasn't this story ever been told? Do you think it could be compelling, you know, pitch idea for, for a Netflix treatment? I think so. I think a series. Can we get like Christian Bale to play me or something? I'll, I'll tell you what. Yes, provided I can play myself and appear in at least one of the episodes. <laughs> yeah, back when I'm in the Trenton courtroom or when I'm, uh, you know, going up and introducing myself to you for the first time. I think that would be a compelling story if it's done right. I mean, they, they had that show Lucky on HBO and that was a very slow burn. And, you know, that was around the Santa Anita situation and that series came to a close. But when done well, a story or a series on the gambling industry could be very compelling theater. And, and what's bigger than this story? Look, it is a great story. And I think, you know, look, you've got, think of Ted Olson and, and, and all that man has accomplished throughout his career you know, illustrious career in life. And, you know, to get a chance to get to know him through this case was such a treat. I'm proud to call him a friend. And, you know, what he what he's done is just remarkable. I'll always be a Chris Christie fan just from the, uh, I remember the first, you know, the conversation I had with him after that talk he gave at the University of Delaware. I happened to run into him at the, the Deer Park Tavern, which is sort of the, you know, the famous bar restaurant at the University of Delaware. And, Sure enough, there he was after the event, sitting at the table with the cheeseburger. And, uh, you know, I went up and started talking to him. So, uh, you know, a lot, I had a lot of fun, you know, memories flow from all this. You know, Dennis and I got to go to the races at Royal Ascot together with our families. And that was uh, that was fantastic. So, you know, there's been a, a, lot, a lot of neat stuff come out of it for sure. Is it true that he's a competitor of yours now? You're powering the, the sports book at the Meadowlands and he runs Monmouth Park Racetrack. So in a sense... You went from collaborators to now, at least on the professional side, you're somewhat competitive with one another. Well, uh, yeah, it's funny. I hadn't thought about that till 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 you just sent it. Now, you know, we still talk. Sorry, I impacted your friendship. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I, I think the world of Dennis. <laughs> I think the world of Dennis. Great guy, and as I say, you know, very smart, very dedicated, a real joy to do business with. A lot of our audiences, you know, law students and young lawyers who want to get into the field. So I, I, you have an, an incredible background and an incredible career that you've had. And somebody who, you know, came out, you did a clerkship, you you worked for Skadden, big law, and then you you jumped right into this, you know, at the time, really relatively, you know, niche area. It still is niche, but, you know, very specific area of law of sports betting and, and, and has just absolutely watched it blossom into what we, where we are today. So what advice do you have for, for any, any young law student, young lawyer who wants to really get into sports betting, sports gambling into the field? Yeah, well, and, and I never really did anything with sports betting when I was a lawyer. Look, I think as with anything, it's about, you know, following, following your passion, following your interests. You know, I grew up around gambling as a little kid back in Delaware because my dad was a gambler and started working at the racetrack when I was 16. Decided I wanted to announce horse races. In fact, I still do every uh, Labor Day weekend up at the Elko County Fair in Northeastern Nevada. My son and I go up there for that. I think it's all about, you know, really. And so I had this career as a lawyer and then got back into the gambling business. And obviously a legal background is incredibly helpful in the gaming industry because it's such a heavily regulated industry. And it's of course been very, very helpful for me, you know, for all the reasons that we, you know, that we just talked about. I think the key is to really follow your passion, learn as much as you can about something, and then look for opportunities to get involved in it. Right. I mean, Dan is a great example of that. Right. I mean, you know, uh, he, he just decided he was really interested in gambling and 
and sports betting and started writing about it and, and, you know, got known for this, you know, real niche specialty. And so, you know, for any lawyer coming out of law school, my, my advice, you know, is always, you know, work hard, try to learn the best practices, attention to detail, thoroughness, right? Act with integrity and, and then just pursue your passion whatever, wherever it may lead you, right? Whether it's sports betting or being a public defender or a prosecutor or, you know, any other, you know, specialty in the law. Joe, I could really go on all day. I know you probably can't. This has been one of the most fascinating conversations I've had with any anybody in the history of conduct detrimental. It's certainly a, a topic I love talking about, but you're also somebody that I've looked up to for a long time and I've always admired in the industry. And you've had such a multifaceted career, you know, the youngest racetrack announcer in the history of North America, a litigator at Skadden Arps. You, you do your own lobbying and governmental affairs. And usually at these companies, they send the their, their lobbyists to do it, but you go there yourself. And I've admired the, all the different hats that you've worn in your career in gaming and I look forward to continuing our conversation in some other forum uh, someday soon but thank you for being so generous with your time and allowing us to kind of revisit Christy 1, Christy 2 and Murphy and talk about some of the current developments in the sports betting industry it was a pleasure to to talk to you well thank you uh thank you both really enjoyed it thank you Joe and congrats on your hall of fame induction yeah thank you so that was Joe Asher, president of IGT Gaming. I thought, Dan, I thought that was a really great conversation. He's super knowledgeable. I mean, we went through the history of, of sports gambling and all the way through the future and its connection to pro sports and college sports and advertising. And, and there's a lot to cover. And I think we did it in well within an hour here, just a little over an hour. But Dan, I wanted to pitch one question to you. He keeps saying it and he said it before and he's been quoted on saying it. He says all 50 states are going to have legalized sports gambling. Do you believe them? Do you agree with them? Yeah, because at some point, he didn't put a time limit on his prediction. If he said by 2024, all 50 states, I'd say no way. But in three years or four years now, since PASPA was overturned, we've gone from just one state that had single game sports wagering to now I believe it's 34. So that's a very rapid rate of progression. And there are only 16 states left. I think the only likely holdouts in the short term are going to be states like Utah and Hawaii. And I think it's only a matter of time. And Joe's been proven right time and time again in this space. So I have no reason to doubt or question his prediction. In fact, I agree with it, particularly if you put no time limit on it, because forever is a very long time. And inevitably, the lore of legal sports betting will be too difficult to resist because of the amount of money that's at stake. And of course, he, he highlighted the fact that Utah has professional sports teams and the Jazz are probably going to be pushing heavily for it. And there is a lot of good that the revenues from legal sports betting could, could accomplish in a state like Utah. So if you, if you message it correctly and you create an important public recipient, like it could be in California, they're highlighting homelessness. In Utah, maybe it goes to some you know, important you know, you know, public works organization or it benefits education or maybe something. There's a way to message it. And as I said, forever is a long time. So I'm in total agreement with him. When will that happen? Probably not within the next few years, but I would expect by 2030 that Utah would join the fold. And that's not a long shot at all, given the rapid pace at which sports betting has been legalized in states that we wouldn't have even guessed were going to be front runners, like Kansas, Mississippi, you know, Alabama came close to passing it last year. So I think, I think it's a proverbial layup 
over a longer time horizon. Yeah, I agree. I think we're getting there. And I think as as some of the bigger states go live, we've seen with New York and, and next California, I think ultimately we, we will see that. And I, I definitely agree with that too. And I liked what uh, Joe had to say as, as some advice for young students, young law students. It's the passion, right? He started, you see his, his he grew up around racetracks and he loved going to racetracks and, and he ultimately started announcing for racetracks and he then became a lawyer and then came back to it. So I, I think it's admirable there. And I think one of the perfect examples he said is to get into the sports gambling field, you have to be, you know, it's, it's not necessary, but it's helpful to be a lawyer because of a lot of the nuances and the, and the, the compliance and the regulation. So to that effect, to help you get to become that lawyer, we go into our other sponsor for this episode, Themis Bar Review, right? The bar is coming up now. We have Taryn who is taking Themis. We've, we've talked about this. Stephanie successfully passed the bar using Themis Bar Review. Head over to themisbar.com forward slash con detrimental, and you can get, it still has a chance to get a $200 discount using that URL. And, and if you're a rising 3L and you're looking at, at getting a bar prep company, again, head over to themisbar.com forward slash detrimental. And, and they are definitely the best, the best all around uh, bar prep. And they're going to get you to uh, what Joe said. You got to be a lawyer first and then get you to wherever you want to be and follow your passion. Well, speaking of passion, you know, Joe alluded to me earlier and in, in, in highlighting me or pointing me out as, a, as an example of somebody who had a lot of passion about the topic. And I'll, I'll tell you where that passion came from. I was a lawyer that had a, an interest in, in, you know, sports law and, and even sports betting generally. And I took that passion for it and I began writing and it was sort of the, ve- the, the, the vehicle of writing blog posts and articles basically catapulted me into sort of a, a position where I became known in the industry and known in the media, but it all began in sort of the blog posts that had no traction or visibility. I was so passionate about it that I just I couldn't stop. And my incessant amount of writing about the topic eventually developed an audience. And I would invite and encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're a law student or a lawyer, and you want to be able to sort of highlight or showcase your knowledge or passion in a particular industry, come write for us. You know, we accept submissions voluntary submissions. There are no barriers to entry in this field. And if you want to write conduct detrimental and you have something unique to say, maybe someday you're going to be that person who's an expert in that area. And it will have started with a blog post of conduct detrimental, because I can tell you when I started, my blog posts were on a law firm blog that absolutely nobody read. And it took me a good six months before anyone ever noticed. So if you're passionate, relentless, and you have an interest in some particular aspect or segment of sports law, sports betting, you got to start somewhere. And you can't always predict where it's going to lead. But if you're obsessive about it, like I was about sports betting, eventually you'll get noticed and you'll derive a lot of satisfaction from you know, just the journey. And, and that was the most exciting thing for me, that once I caught the bug, I couldn't stop. And it was maybe a year before anyone really started quoting me or, or paying attention to me. But just the, 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 the satisfaction from uh, finding something that really connected with me was all the motivation I needed. And uh, that, that could be any of you out there. And now what's available for you is something that wasn't available for me back in the day, a sports law website where your published articles can be you know, read by hundreds, if not a couple thousand people. So please feel free to take advantage of that opportunity. 
our doors are always open and we welcome an expanded Conduct Detrimental family. Yeah, absolutely. You can DM us, you can reach us on social media or shoot us an email at conductdetrimental uh, at gmail.com. So Dan Wallach's at Wallach Legal on Twitter. Dan Lust is at Sports Law Lust. Mine, I'm Mike underscore son of underscore law. For everyone at, at Conduct Detrimental, you, you can find us at Detrimental, And if you want to email us, conductdetrimental at gmail.com. That'll wrap it for us. I, I think that this is, this is something that Dan and I want to to continually have guests who are who are big players in the, the sports betting market to keep you up to date with all news coming forward with the legalization and, and everything that's happening with legislature. And until next time, we'll see you on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.